Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. I plan to talk to y'all about these discourses as structures and the positions of agent to other with product and truth. And then last night, I woke with a fever. Literally, I woke up with a fever, shivering. I was a mess. And so I thought, what better time to read Lacan? And so I sat down with chapter three of Seminar 17, and I came up with something different to talk to you about, at least to start. We'll get to the discourse stuff soon enough. Let's see if we can pick up the thread to begin. The thread that we were tracing through chapters one and two and stretching all the way back to Lacan's essay on the subversion of the subject, where he develops this hypothesis of the signifier, his understanding of the signifier that would carry him throughout the 1960s. The signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. And the topology that we got out of that was this S1 with an arrow pointed to S2 and a barred subject under the S1. The S1 is the signifier that represents the barred subject to another signifier. Now, it's more complicated than that, we've learned. There's a retroactive feature here that has to be addressed. And by retroaction, we mean repetition. Let's see what we can make of this. First things first, some terms. The first signifier here, that in the early 1960s, Lacan is symbolizing by a signifier of the barred other. You see this in the upper left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. This S1. You've heard me talk in our previous series on 16 and at the start of this one about the two basic functions that this S1 serves. And I offer this as a baseline for thinking the S1 in a new way. First and foremost, the S1 is repetitive. It has a retroactive component. Here is its function as unary trait. And the function of unary trait, I said, was a two-moment set that had two things popping in it. First, there was the no of the father that was prohibitive, that was subjugating, and that hollowed out the subject or the living individual in composition as a subject and allowed for a superego to take shape. This is one function of S1 when it works as a unary trait. And when it functions as a unary trait, it also has this second function, not just the no of the father, but the name of the father as well, that wouldn't be prohibitive, but instead positional. It would position the subject. This is not subjugation, but subjectivization. Here, the S1 as a unary trait fills in the subject and fills it in with what? An ego ideal. The trajectory here you've seen me chart is from a big barred other, read Big Bad Wolf, big barred other, to an S2, to an S1, to a barred subject. Here's the S1 serving its repetitive retroactive function when it links up with an S2 and then atop this linkage designates, represents 
this subject in question. Here is S1 as a unary trait serving its two basic functions, prohibitive and positional. The first resulting in a superego, the second resulting in an ego ideal. This, however, is not the only definition of S1 that we've been working with. We've been working with another definition of S1 around difference. Difference sometimes at the level of the unfolding of time. Difference, S1 as a master signifier. What is it a master signifier of? Absolute difference. Here what we see is an extimate limit within the big barred other. This is where we have that negative one that Lacan was talking about in the early 1960s. This parens negative one in the battery of signifiers, which is where he locates the signifier of lack in the other. It's not external to, despite even his own indications of its exterior status. It enters into, in fact, it emerges within the big barred other as an effect of its own slippage. This master signifier typically is understood as that which collectivizes any given S2 and by extension the big barred other. And it works, if you think about it very carefully, like the nothing that has to be excluded from any totalizing category of everything. If everything is included, nothing has been left out. This signifier of the barred other when S1 functions as a master signifier is just that. It's the nothing that has been left out in order to guarantee and prop up a totalizing category. If everything is packed, nothing has been left behind. And Lacan's point again and again, you've heard me say, this nothing is an entity to be tracked down, to be worked with, to be accounted for. The big barred other knows this as well. Even if it can only figure this entity as lost, missing, subtracted, it still receives a designation. This S1 qua master signifier, it can and often does originate in the subject from a living subject, a subject that is one part living individual, as Lacan is calling them here, and one part split subject. Here the trajectory would be from a split subject to an S1 to an S2 to the big barred other. So when you have S1 as unary trait, it moves one direction from the big barred other to S2 to S1 to the barred subject. When you have it as a master signifier though, especially when it originates from the barred subject, you see the opposite trajectory from the barred subject to S1 to S2 to the big barred other. We've been over this multiple times across two series now, so I'm going to start leaving this one in abeyance knowing that you are already aware of it. What then is this other signifier, this other signifier to which the S1 represents a subject when it gets a chance to do so? What is this other signifier? Well, in the early 1960s, this was capital A. This was the battery of signifiers. Here, in Seminar 17, building on his work in the previous seminar, it's S2. And let me be clear again, categorical even. S2 for Lacan is an excised subset of the big barred other. 
a big barred other that is ever incomplete and only exists as a totalizing operation. Here is that A with a slash through it. S2 is an excised subset of the big barred other and driven by many of the same totalizing logics. And that's all they, that either of them are. They're logics, they're structures. All right, let's get to the main event. This barred subject we've been talking about. What is the subject? Let me summarize what you've heard me say so far. Again, building right on Lacan's work here in 17. The barred subject, this S with a slash through it, much like the same slash in the barred other, is the mark or the trace left by the differential yet iterative relation between S1 and S2 in the living individual. The barred subject is an effect structure. It's the mark that language leaves in the living individual. Lacan tells us. It's a mark or a trace left by the differential yet iterative relation between S1s and S2s known as language. And it's a mark that is left in the living individual. The living individual is the locus for the mark that is the barred subject. And the barred subject is an effect structure produced by these S1s linking up with S2s as excised subsets of the big barred other. Now you see here, it's like learning a foreign language. We've got four or five different terms popping all at once and occurring in the same damn sentence. Part of the reason why this shit is recorded, pause, go back, rewind, learn the terms in order to speak the language. That's what we're working on here. Lacan is inviting us into a discourse about discourse. And that's what we're trying to do, is learn this language. For me, the most interesting part in all of this is that living individual. This locus that receives the mark of the barred subject that is always to some extent in excess of this designation you heard me say. The living individual is always a little bit to a lot bigger than the barred subject. It's the locus in which the barred subject as a stroke, as a mark, as a trace is left but that locus is always bigger in size than the mark known as the barred subject. In other words, the living individual always exceeds the split subject. Where the split subject leaves its mark or trace, we know is the living individual. But I think we could be more precise. The living individual is where the big barred other leaves the trace known as the barred subject. And there's some great stuff to support us on this. I learned last night in my feverish delusional read of chapter three. Check out page 49 on this glory of the mark toward the bottom of page 49. And don't you love the lights here on my glasses? I'm tripping as I see this stuff. This is exactly how I read Chapter 3, Lord. I'm speaking of the mark on the skin, Lacan says on page 49, which in this fantasy inspires nothing other than a subject identifying itself as the object of jouissance. In the erotic practice I'm alluding to, which to give its name, to give it its name, in case anyone is hard of hearing, is flagellation, the enjoying adopts the very ambiguity by means of which it is at 
its level and no other that the equivalent equivalence between the gesture of making a mark and the body, objective jouissance can be reached. Reading aloud is such a challenge here because I want to think as I read, which I'm used to doing, but then to read aloud while I'm tempted to think and rethink again. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that we do this stuff? And guess what? I do this for fun. This is what I actually truly enjoy doing, even and especially in the middle of the night in a feverish state. Triple digits, baby. Whose jouissance are we talking about here? Lacan asks it. It's the very next paragraph. Whose jouissance? Is it the jouissance of whoever carries what I am calling the glory of the mark? I don't know about that. Is it certain that this means the big O other's jouissance? Think big barred other here. Certainly, this is one of the ways in which the big barred other enters one's world. And assuredly, it is an irrefutable one. The big barred other enters our world as living individuals through the imposition of these marks, these traces, these designators, not least of which is that of the barred subject, the split subject as a trace or a mark by which the big barred other enters our lives, not unlike the glory of the mark received in flagellation. I didn't come here to talk to you about that, but I thought that was a cool passage for us to check out. Now let's talk about what this living individual is relative to the big barred other. The living individual is what the big barred other repeatedly loses, you've heard me say. And what I want to add is this, loses and repeatedly figures, redisfigures as lost in each and every representation of the subject that it effects as a mark in this living individual. The living individual, in other words, doesn't just exceed the mark known as the split subject that it receives from the big barred other. In this excess, it also escapes and eludes the big barred other. And the big barred other, to the extent that we can say this, knows it. The living individual is the real substrate, the remainder, the corporal scrap or the reject, as Lacan starts playing with here, that occasions the big barred other's ever-expanding encompassment of each topology of the subject in a bigger, badder version of itself, an iteration of itself. And that's what we see as the topology of the subject starts to unfold. The living individual in its excessive status eludes and only shows up in the big barred other's count as a negative one. And as a result, the big barred other says, aha, so there's more out there for me to account for. Let's run that same representative logic for the subject again. And then the living individual receives another mark of split subjectivity because it's an iterative structure that is coming to us through the big barred other. Those iterative, progressively more encompassing topologies of the subject that are the big barred other, that's all the big barred other is, is those iterative encompassments. You've heard me say multiple times. The living individual receives a new mark every single time that occurs. 
And that's why this image of a flagellated body is important here. Because you never just whip yourself once to get those nice grill marks on your back that Lacan seems to be referring to here. It is an iterative process. In other words, we are never just a split subject or one split subject. Or if you prefer, that's all we ever are, one right after the other. The barred subject is just a sequence, an eschatological stretch out of barred subjects being inflicted upon the living individual. That's what the barred subject is. You've heard me speak about this as like a comet leaving a trace behind. As you look at that second diagram in our series on 16, which I won't draw for you again here, what you see is the barred subject unfolding as a logic of repetitive necessity. Each of those unfoldings is a new mark on the living individual. Let's be clear. Let's take some risks in this feverish state. It's my body, and it's your body too, that the big barred other always lacks, loses track of, seeks to represent, even if only as lost. And that's kind of a tricky thing here too. It's one thing to say that this body is always lost on and to the big barred other. But the big barred other knows how to figure it as lost. That's what Lacan's doing with the parens negative one in the subversion of the subject essay. This negative one marks a site in the big barred other, reads symbolic, where the absence of a certain entity, structure, event, is represented. If you're at the library and you can see volumes 1 through 10 of Kant's collected writings, and you can count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, you know that volumes 8 and 9 aren't there. Even if the books are close together, there's a figure of their absence in the set, even if one or two or several of the books in that set are missing. The fact that they're numbered in a certain way, when you see that skip between 7 and 10, yes, books 8 and 9 are missing, but they are still present as lost, present as missing. Oftentimes in a library, I choose this example carefully, not just because I love Kant and because I love libraries, but because oftentimes you'll see the books right next to each other, and then there's a gap in the shelf, where two books would fit but are gone. You oftentimes see this at libraries. And what librarians do is they come up and they squish all the books together, and so you have to look at the numerical system to know which books are missing. But oftentimes, when a book has been pulled off a shelf at your house, it leaves a gap. That gap marks this book as missing. Emphasis on marks as missing. Figures it. That's that negative one. So it's not just that my body your body, is what the big other always lacks and loses track of. It's also that that part of myself that the big other always tries to represent. And even if it can't get a hold of it with a new figuration of the barred subject, it will simply have a negative one, a placeholder of sorts, for that part that it lacks. Obja is really good here. Lacan's trying to be as precise as possible here. He's saying that Objea designates this loss, this lack, this hollow. It's interesting. You can look at page 15. It's pretty useful here. My money, though, so far on Objea is page 48. 
Notice how Lacan puts this. What becomes evident from this formalization? To keep following Lacan, he says, speaking of himself in the third person, because isn't speaking of yourself in the third person a sure sign that you've arrived? What becomes evident from this formalism to keep following Lacan, he says, of himself, probably not the first time, perhaps he said the same at lunch, is, as we were saying just before, that there is a loss of jouissance. We'll come to that. And it is in the place of this loss introduced by repetition, we'll come to that as well, that we see the function of the lost object emerge, of what I am calling the little italicized A. What does this impose on us? If not this formula, that at the most elementary level, that of the imposition of the unary trait, knowledge at work produces, let's say, an entropy. We're going to come to that as well, because the type of loss that Lacan is referring to is like that of entropy in a whole host of disciplines. As the system develops, ages and the like, it starts to fall apart. It starts to lose a little bit. Your body is an entropic system. Trust me, when you start getting a little gray here and there, you'll start noticing how entropy works at the level of a bodily system. Things start to fall apart. Objea designates these things that fall apart as a system ages. Entropy is just a fancy word for talking about that. We'll come to it. Here, little a designates this loss. And we mark it very clearly in the differential relations between each iteration of the knowledge process and the big barred other, you heard me say, each progressively encompassing, ever-expanding S2 that we've discussed, the differential relation between each iteration of that S2 in the topology of the subject, we designate that with OBJA. It measures or indexes the difference between any given iteration of that S2. I can't emphasize that enough, which is why you keep hearing it from me. In the Bard subject, though, Objea also marks the differential relation between me as a living individual in an enunciating subject and me as a split subject, as a Bard subject, as a subject of the signifier if you will. This subject of the signifier is my grammatical subjectivity. Again, if you allow yourself the wormhole between the late 60s Lacan and the early 60s Lacan, the enunciating subject is the living individual here. And the grammatical subject is the subject of the signifier, defiled and scanned by the signifier, me as a bioanimalistic living individual and me as a sociolinguistified abstract, all too often simply represented being. Objea marks the differential relation between those two parts of self in the Bard subject. Hence my statement in the last series, I am what the big other lacks. I, as a living individual, and what the big barred other lacks. What renders its barred is my lack within its ranks. But the big barred other is not what I lack. 
You heard me say this in our last series. I bring it up now because you can start to see where I arrive at that formulation. What I lack is a relation to myself that is unmediated, undivided by the signifier that has not been, as Lacan puts it on page 19, scanned by the signifier. That's what I lack. What I lack is an unmediated relation to myself, a relation that does not have the imposition of a signifier, of signifying in between. Which brings us to this knowledge process. The knowledge process, as Lacan describes it on page 19, that conditions the big barred other's jouissance, locating it in endlessly expanding iterations of itself, this is an important element for us. Objea marks the differential relation between different instances of the exact same topology as they encompass themselves, you've heard me say. That's a little abstract way to put it, but I'm moving fast and loose and feverishly with this stuff right now. So bear with me. This, you've heard me say, is also where the big other enjoys. The jouissance of the big barred other does not occur at or beyond its limits in the field of the living individual or whatever you figure. There is no beyond. There is no outside text here. That's the point. That's why Das Ding is a ridiculous concept to pitch alongside Objea. Objea allows us to describe extimate differential relations. Whereas Das Ding, you know, that, it's kind of a tricky one because it always invites us in this Kantian sense to think of a real, ugh, hesitate to use that word, but some sort of a realm beyond the human perceptual field that if we could just get there. And Lacan is just not having any of that. The real is a rupture, misstep, a miscalculation, an error in the programming of the symbolic. It is not some excessive realm beyond the symbolic. It is an inner limit within the symbolic, a hollow in the symbolic. He said this like a hundred times. So I don't think there's any question about why he drops Das Ding. It's obvious. Seven starts and ends the series of discussions of Das Ding because Das Ding doesn't allow Lacan to very precisely suggest what he means by the real. The real is a hollow in the symbolic, not some realm beyond it. That's why I'm trying to get us to think the living individual, less as something that wanders outside the symbolic, but instead as something that wanders errantly within the symbolic, unrepresented in and by the symbolic, sufficient only to capture the symbolic at the level of that parens negative one. The symbolic knows there's something there, if we can talk about it that way, and has a negative one or a gap, a trace of absence that it uses, that it can use to designate what's not there. In social sciences, we sometimes call this a noticeable absence. When you don't show up to the meeting, yeah, you're not there. Yeah, you're not counted. But your absence is represented, designated. It is a noticeable absence. What I want to note about this knowledge process that conditions the big barred other's enjoyment, this knowledge process whose unfoldings we mark with Objea, this knowledge process is also what castrates me, you.
and every other subject on this call. It compels me to renounce sexual jouissance and always in exchange for its attenuated variant, surplus jouissance, which Lacan very brilliantly describes on page 46 as a reduction in jouissance. This is the point that I want to pause on to give us something to think about here. When I am castrated by the knowledge process of the big barred other that leaves the mark of subjectivity in my living individual, everything you've heard me say so far, what effectively happens in that moment is I am asked and compelled to renounce one type of jouissance in exchange for another. I renounce sexual jouissance in exchange for an attenuated variant on that jouissance, known as surplus jouissance, a jouissance that is a reduction, an attenuated variant, a watered-down version of sexual jouissance. Let me be clear and categorical. My emergence as a subject requires a renunciation of jouissance. This is not, however, a giving up of something I once had in the past. Hear me now. The renunciation of jouissance that conditions my subjectivity, that invites me into the symbolic, is not a giving up of something I once had. Instead, it's a willingness to forego possession of jouissance in the future. That's a really important part here. When Lacan talks about the renunciation of jouissance, he's not saying you're giving up something you once had. He's saying that you're making a promise, a covenant of sorts that says, and I won't pursue this in the future. It's not about what you had and subsequently lost. That's bullshit. What we're talking about is what you are forbidden from having access to now or any time in the future. Again, let's be clear. What we're talking about here is the hereafter not the heretofore. The renunciation of jouissance is a commitment to the hereafter, not a forbearance of something in the heretofore. This is precisely what Lacan means on page 18 when he says, and I quote, knowledge is what brings life to a halt at a certain limit on the path to jouissance. Knowledge is what brings life to a halt, the life of a living individual to a halt, at a certain limit on the path to enjoyment. Enjoyment is the mountain at the end of the path that you as a living individual were pursuing. You didn't have enjoyment. When the knowledge process that conditions the big barred other and our split subjectivity takes place in a castrative logic that we might call symbolic alienation, what effectively happens is I am brought to a halt midway on my journey and I am told I can go no further. That's what I mean when I say that the renunciation of jouissance that is the condition of possibility for my split subjectivity, for my integration, as neurotic, perhaps, into the symbolic, it does not ask me to give up something I once had in the past. I can't say this enough. But instead, it marks a willingness on my part to forego any pursuit or 
presumed possession of jouissance in the future. Again, it's about the hereafter, not the heretofore. Let's pause there, take a break, let this fever cool down, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more because this brings us right to the cusp of another important Lacanian concept, namely that of transgression. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.